0: Just a little word of apology right from the beginning. Um, In addition to my nicely watered eyes, um, I've also got a cold. So there may be occasions throughout the course of this sermon when I'm going to sound a bit like a one-man band. Um, Weeping and sneezing and coughing and honking. Ideally praising God somewhere along the way. Pardon me? Thank you. Yeah. One thing I won't do is any leaping, okay? So you can you can relax about that. Anyways. Okay, so let's get this straight. Let's make sure I'm hearing this right because it sure doesn't make any sense. But being a reasonable guy, I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'll give you a chance to explain yourself before I fly off the handle. Because if what I think you said was what you did say, then I have a problem. Because it sounded like you said that God said that God was going to use some pagan king to bring about the restoration of Israel to its proper land. Oh, so that is what you said. Okay, well, in that case, I'm going to count to ten. Um, you see, I have this blood pressure problem. You can ask my son. Sometimes they joke about my head just up and exploding like a watermelon being dropped off a bridge. Okay, you're right. It's not a very pretty picture. But... So give me ten. <sighs> okay, that's a little bit better. All right, where? Where to begin? I mean, what you said is so wrong on so many levels that I honestly don't know where to begin. So, all right, first of all, God is our God, right? We're the chosen ones, right? Israel and God, God and Israel together since the beginning. All right, admittedly, we've fallen on hard times relationship-wise. Maybe we didn't always keep our end of the bargain. Maybe God was a little too hasty with the judgment. But, hey, a rule is a rule is a rule. Got that hanging on my doorpost. Still... Our whole story is about how God chose us and rescued us and gave us the land and never sleeps and keeps the sun and the moon in their rightful places. And we are the apple of God's eye. Excuse me for sounding just a little bit partisan here. But it sounds to me like God likes us an awful lot. And then our grandparents always tell us stories of the heroes, Moses, Joshua, David, and how God used them to wipe out the bad people in order to make room for us and bless us and keep us safe and sound. I mean, if God uses anybody, God uses us, right? And Cyrus I mean, look, just between you and me, Cyrus doesn't even know who God is. He's got his own gods to worship. Idols is what we call them. wooden, stone, pretend gods. He's a pagan is what he is. And we know how God feels about pagans, don't we? God gives him two choices, shape up or be shipped out. Get saved or get burned. There's no middle ground. Cyrus is just another petty tyrant, although don't tell him I said so. And a pagan at that. It's only a matter of, time till he gets what every other pagan tyrant gets the idea of god using him to do anything good is beyond me out of the question besides okay besides let's be honest it's no coincidence that god chose us i mean you know what i mean maybe we don't always act like it but we're well we're special right I mean, we must be, or God would never have chosen us. We're the ones who got the law, the ark, the, the temple, the fire, the, the cloud, the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, these aren't things God just does for anybody, only for us. Remember your scripture? Remember all that light to the nations, all the nations of the world will be blessed? Remember all that language? That was about us, right? The children of Abraham, we're God's favorites. And for good reason, because we're cleaner, smarter And more law-abiding than anybody else. We know what to eat and what not to eat. We know who to eat with. In fact, that's why we have so many enemies. You see, they look at us and they envy our freedom, our prosperity, our faith, and the blessings that have come from it. And they feel the need to destroy what they can't have. Infidels and pagans alike hate us. Like nature hates a vacuum. And they'll do anything to bring it down. But every time they do, God intervenes. Because God won't let anything bad happen to us. Oh, well, right, okay. Um, Granted, there was that whole Babylonian thing, but uh, it was terrible. There's no way around that. Did we deserve it? Well, let's just say it was a bad time for everyone and leave it at that. And frankly, I have no time for that kind of self-examination that's so popular. No problem accepting that our ancestors sinned and that God allowed Babylon to come tear a place apart and haul him off his exiles, but that was so long ago. What's the use of talking about something that our great-grandparents did 75 years ago. I say let's live in the moment and put that stuff behind us. And besides, we landed on our feet, right? The old-timers, they talk about how bad it was being removed from their homes and marched off to some strange pagan city halfway across the world, and sure, it was traumatic for them. But look how well we've done since. Haven't we prospered here? Hasn't God blessed us here? Do we really want to give this up? And for what? For some distant memory? Some ruined battlefield? Some place we've never seen and really have no interest in at all? No, my friend, not me. Isaiah can say what he wants, but I will not, I cannot believe a word of this so-called prophecy, this so-called word from the Lord, because the God I know, that God, would never use some pagan emperor to benefit us. Especially when the so-called benefit is nothing more than a fool's paradise of a wasteland. Not me. No way. Well, imagine the preacher standing up some Sunday morning to proclaim that Vladimir Putin is God's chosen one who will redeem us and restore us to the promised land of God's favor. Imagine the preacher standing up one morning and explaining that God has come to her in a dream and revealed that the events of September 11 were for our own good and that blessing will come from the hands of terrorists, that the terrorists were God's anointed ones. Imagine the preacher standing up one morning and suggesting that God will make use of Iranian President Ahmadinejad, that he is God's Messiah, whom God will use to call us to repentance and healing. Okay, catch your breath. It's pretty unbelievable, hard to imagine. It's the sort of sermon that would get a preacher a lot of hits on YouTube and denunciations on Fox News, <laughs> not to mention a quickly drafted letter of termination from the church board. <laughs> Such proclamation, no matter how sincerely done, would sound so wrong to us that we would at first be shocked, then we'd ask each other, did we hear that right? Right? And then we'd double-check and then realize, oh, well, we did hear that right. And then we'd get angry and we'd sputter our protests and then we'd call for a congregational meeting and the formation of a search committee. <laughs> it would sound so wrong to us, postmodern as we've become, and willing to flex a bit on a lot of what our grandparents understood as the essentials of the faith, but suddenly we'd come smack up against lines that we're not even sure we knew existed until we ran right into them. Our anger and our rejection might spring from different sources than those of ancient Israel. We're not so quick, I don't think, to claim that God belongs just to us. We're not so likely to consider ourselves uniquely chosen or blessed. We've got bumper stickers to prove it. And we've long since learned not to look down on others simply because they come from a different country or tribe or ethnicity or even religion. On the other hand, we're certainly comfortable here in Babylon This world is not our home, and we are just a passing through. But that doesn't keep us from doing a little shopping um, along the way, finding a nice comfortable place to lie down, contemplate the journey. Perhaps we're getting a little bit too cozy with the world. Maybe in the end what we'd find most disturbing about Isaiah's message is not that God would use some pagan emperor to take us home, but the idea that we're not already home. Maybe it would be the idea of packing up and leaving the place we've come to know as home for some place we've never seen and is, at best, a fading memory held by a few old women and men. Maybe what we'd fear is the notion of being carried off by God's will to some strange land. Maybe that's what this story reveals, that, that what offends us is the possibility of God using someone we consider to be an infidel to do God's will toward us. But what terrifies us is the possibility that God will carry us away from what we've come to know as home, as safety, as security. We bluster about the first, but in our heart of hearts we worry about the second. Well, in the best tradition of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, some Herodians and some Pharisees sent a joint delegation to Jesus The Pharisees despised the Romans and resented their taxes as insults to the Jewish nation and religion. The Herodians loved the Romans or at least were willing co-conspirators with them and would no more resist the tax than they would refuse their paycheck out of one hand into the other. That's how it worked for the members of King Herod's party. The Pharisees considered the Herodians to be traitors and the worst kind of parasites feeding Off their Roman masters at the expense of the people. The Herodians considered the Pharisees to be parochial and naive, the kind of people who would cut off their noses to spite someone else's face. But they seemed to have one common bond their desire to get Jesus out of the way. And so, for this one moment in history, they joined forces and went after Jesus. Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Okay, is the first part of that sentence dripping with condescension, or is it just me? We know that you are sincere, pat on the head. We know you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, pat on the head. And then there's this nice rhetorical pirouette From condescension to barely concealed anger, we know that you show deference to no one, not even to your betters. For you do not regard people with partiality. In other words, you do not know your place. You do not recognize who is better than you, and you don't know when to be quiet and let smarter, better people do the talking. I could be reading into this but it sure seems to me that the velvet gloves that the Pharisees and Herodians had put on are already shredding and the iron fists are exposed. This is no friendly theological debate. This is um, a duel of wits with the loser losing all. So having effectively diminished Jesus and swatted him down for his pretensions, the Pharisees and Herodians tossed down a gauntlet. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? It was a sweet setup, right? If Jesus says yes, he can be accused of unfaithfulness by the Pharisees. A yes answer is the answer given by a compromiser, one who attempts to straddle the fence between God and Caesar, afraid of both, trying to appease both, but when push comes to shove, more obedient or more afraid of Caesar. A yes answer to the question of paying taxes hands the Pharisees the ammunition that they need to name Jesus as just another collaborator with Rome. But if Jesus says no, he can be accused of rebellion by the Herodians, of disobedience. A no answer is a challenge to the power of Rome, guaranteed to result in punishment for Jesus and for anybody foolish enough to follow his counsel. So no matter which way he answered, Jesus was bound to catch it from one party or the other. It really was a sweet setup. But Jesus caught on. He smelled the trap. He caught the less than subtle threat in both the preliminaries and the question itself. He knew a Pharisee from a Herodian. and He knew that they were not prone to taking lunch together. And so saw something coming a mile off. All of that human intuition plus the Holy Spirit gave Jesus a very clear picture of what was happening and why. And so Jesus didn't even bother to put on the velvet glove. Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Okay. (laughs) Jesus clearly did not attend one of those helpful conflict resolution classes that we (laughs) Mennonites are so fond of. He went straight to that prophetic insult language, righteous anger. From Jesus and plenty to go around. Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And so they brought him a silver coin on which was stamped the image of the emperor and on which was written these words Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And Jesus asked them, Whose head is this and whose title? And I have to wonder, did any of the Herodians and Pharisees have that sinking feeling that things had somehow taken a turn and that they were now on trial? Did they maybe wish that they'd done a little bit more prep work before the debate, honing their message to the finest point, rehearsing the perfect reaction lines? I mean, did they see the train coming toward them at all? Well, they answered, the emperor's. Give, therefore, to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. And they left him and went away. Okay, now imagine a preacher getting up some Sunday morning and declaring that we should all quit paying our taxes and that we should all quit voting and that we should quit having anything to do with the world around us And that we should willingly suffer the consequences. Or imagine a preacher getting up and proclaiming that God has blessed us with a divinely anointed form of government, and that it is our duty as citizens and as Christians to support that government through taxes and in every other way. Or imagine a preacher standing up here and making the case for an ongoing communal discernment around questions of allegiance, questions like what does belong to Caesar? And what does belong to God? Questions of, well, how to live faithfully in the empire. I've, aren't you impressed that it took me that long to say that line? I did not set out to preach another empire sermon. I really didn't. This is a lectionary-driven thing here, I guess, or a spirit-driven thing, Lord willing. Um, anyway, I suspect that we would find the first two preachers a little hard to take. Maybe we'd find one or the other more appealing But when it came right down to it, we probably would not want to spend a whole lot of time with either because those kinds of black and white, all-or-nothing claims strike us as being partisan, um, old-school, simply not nuanced enough to make sense of our lives in this day and age. We might occasionally have wistful feelings about what it might be like to be so confident, so sure of being right, but then we take another sip of coffee and turn the page. The third preacher, though, Well, we're not so sure about her either because she's calling us to think and wrestle with and struggle over things that we have come to see as, well, private matters of conscience. I won't tell you what to do, and you won't tell me what to do, and we'll do the best we can to keep from getting in a situation where we'd ever have to do that to each other. You won't tell me that my spending habits are ungodly, and I won't question your singing the national anthem at the Barnstormers game. I won't confront you about your entertainment budget, and you won't ask me how much I put in the offering each week. we call ourselves a community, and we claim to practice accountability, and we say we want our community to walk alongside us, but it really is an awful lot of work, and it's very risky, scary work. There's no telling where it'll take us once we start down that road together. So again, I think it's not so much the question of whether to pay our taxes or not that troubles us, I think what makes us anxious is the possibility of entering more deeply into conversation about our lives and our priorities and our beliefs, opening our deepest selves to one another and to the Holy Spirit. Because once we start down that road together, who knows where we'll end up? And so I suspect, well, I'll speak for myself, I often would prefer to stay right where I am. Maybe take these questions up in an intellectual way. Maybe even take them for a few turns down the theological highway, but always keeping the doors unlocked so I can hop off the minute things start going the wrong way. Sisters and brothers, it's it's very hard, I think, to move out of what we've come to call home. To even think about it, it makes me queasy. It's not so much that we believe ourselves to be living in paradise, but it is what we've grown used to what we've come to know as our own, what we've come to call home. And, well, I know I don't really welcome any disruptions or challenges to that comfort, any calls to get ready to leave. And I think that's natural. I think that's normal. It's it's human. And so the exiles in Babylon didn't necessarily receive Isaiah's message with open arms. They could list all the proper reasons for that rejection, some theological, some social. But in the end, I have to wonder if what was at stake What caused them to resist Isaiah's call was the thought of leaving Babylon, a place that their ancestors had called the place of exile, but that they'd long since learned to call home. I wonder if it was the thought of packing up and and moving back to a strange land that caused them to turn away from Isaiah's promise of restoration. I can't know that, to be sure. But I confess it makes some sense to me because I feel that same resistance to change, to being taken someplace by the Lord that I really don't want to go, no matter the promised blessing when I get there. And so the words of Jesus leave me feeling equally queasy. They give me that same motion sickness, that pit of the stomach, no thank you, I don't want to take the risk if it's all the same to you feeling. I prefer to stick to my own preferences about taxes, my own understanding of what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God, and I... I really don't welcome too much conversation about those preferences and understandings because I fear where they'll take me. I hear Jesus inviting me, inviting us to work at solving this riddle that he posed to the Pharisees and Herodians. What does belong to Caesar? What does belong to God? How do I decide? And what's at stake in the decision? And is this something that I decide for myself or is it something that I do with my sisters and brothers allowing myself to be pushed and pulled along with you as we seek to find our way toward whatever form of faithfulness lies at the end of the discernment. And and what if, what if, what if when we get there, I really don't like it all that much? I know there are lots of ways to interpret um, these scriptures, the scripture readings for today. And, and I'm sure most of them are a whole lot more straightforward um, than mine this morning, but... As I read these texts as I as I spent time with them as I prayed with them I find myself really just aware of this resistance that I feel within myself to the invitation that I hear in them an invitation to believe first of all that God wills the restoration of God's people and is going to go to any lengths to bring that to pass even so far as offending our sensibilities by giving us a messiah in a form that we're just simply not ready to accept. Or an invitation that threatens to remove us from everything that they've come to know as home for the sake of a promised land that we've never known, never known and so have a hard time trusting. It's an invitation that I think the people of God resisted way back when. And that resistance is something that I understand. Because I, too, have settled into this place that I call my life, And while I'm well aware of its shortcomings, I'm reluctant to exchange it for something that I don't know and so cannot trust. A resistance, I feel, to Jesus' invitation to really wrestle with what it means to call him Lord, to struggle with questions of allegiance, to decide where I'm going to stand, with the Herodians or with the Pharisees or someplace else altogether. An invitation which threatens to make my life more messy, less tidy, and calls me into a kind of engagement with questions of faith, which I fear may take me someplace new and scary. Now, you may have noticed by now that much of my resistance assumes that I'm to respond to these questions on my own as an individual, when in fact Isaiah speaks to the whole people of God in exile in the land of Babylon, and Jesus, through Matthew, speaks to the whole people of God in exile in the land of Caesar. The invitation to pack up and move where God wants us to go is not for me to accept or reject. It's an invitation to us all. And the call to discernment of faithful living is also a communal invitation, one made to all the disciples throughout the world. And that fact alone calms my fears at least a little bit. That fact softens my resistance at least a little bit because wherever these invitations may lead, I'm not going alone. And more than that, more than that, we have the promise of God The promise of Jesus to never leave us or forsake us, even at the point of our deepest resistance to the invitation and to that promise. I do not make this journey alone. Our community does not make this journey alone. The body of Christ is not struggling with these questions all alone. God is with us and will see us through to the place that God has prepared for us. Sisters and brothers, I continue to believe that God desires to stir things up among us. And I believe that in that stirring, there is an invitation, an invitation to move, to discern, to follow wherever God is leading, to figure out what we need to take with us and what we ought to leave behind. I believe God invites us as a body because Lord knows we cannot make these choices. We cannot take these risks. We cannot answer these invitations individually and alone. And I've been framing this as an empire thing. And and, and for me, that works. But... I think another way, and I was thinking about this this morning, it seems to me that there's other signs of God stirring among us. Just thinking about the number of things that we've been engaged in as a congregation over the last couple of years. Winter Wednesdays, well, where did they come from? Well, they came from a desire to really gather together more regularly as a community of faith and build up our relationships to one another. Um, where did this long-range planning thing come up where'd that come from is that something that the church board just thought up as as something good to do or was that a response to the movement of the spirit among us to really think seriously about who we are and where we want to go what god is calling us to Um, all of those things it seems to me are additional signs of the movement of the spirit the stirring that i'm sensing to really think about what kind of community are we who do we want to be um, where do we want to go? Where is God wanting to take us? Are we willing to go there? Is it too scary? Um, those questions I think are stirring at least within me and I think I think within this community of faith. Um, I wish I could be more explicit and tell you specifically what to do and how to do it and when to do it, and where it 's all going to take us <clears throat> but i can 't. Um, I could give you opinions and lots of them, but I believe we are meant to discern these things together. I believe we are meant to discern these things together. And so my ongoing call for us is to keep talking about these things. And so in closing, let me make an invitation. Um, You are invited to come here next Sunday evening, October 26th at 6.30 p.m. and sit together with sisters and brothers To talk about what you hear the Spirit saying to you around questions of faithful living. Questions of what kind of community do we want to be? What do we feel we need from this community? What do we have to offer? Where is the Spirit leading us? All of those questions. Um, Next Sunday evening, October 26th, 6.30 p.m. And depending on the size of the group, we'll either meet up here or downstairs. Let that be the beginning, maybe, of some some intentional conversation around these issues. And perhaps one of the things we can take up next week as well is, okay, now what? Where do we go next? How do we keep the conversation going? I don't know where that will take us, but it's a response to the invitation that I hear from the Lord to trust that our restoration is in God's hands, that God is indeed leading us even from this place of exile, and to discern together in this place and time where we live, right, somewhere between Babylon, and the promised land? How do we make the decisions that we need to make to live faithfully in that in-between place? How are we to live together until we really do get home? Sisters and brothers, I do believe God is with us. God is among us, stirring us up, and God will lead us. God will lead us. Amen.